Welcome to Peer to Peer, the podcast, brought to you by Rainer. Listen in as we hear from top surgeons having great conversations with their peers about hot and popular topics in ophthalmology. Hello, I'm Paul Rosen and I'm your host. This two-part series, we're highlighting some great content from a past webinar that Rainer held in May of 2022, which focused on some of the premium IOLs, but specifically the Ray1 EMV. In the second episode, we'll listen to a clip from the webinar about Handy Turnbull and Alan Barsom use Monovision and how they manage the Ray1 EMV patient conversation. Perhaps uh, Andy, you can just ask you about uh, Monovision because uh, hmm. you worked with the uh, guru of uh, uh, Monovision. Yeah. How do you determine which is the dominant and non-dominant eye? And what do you typically use with an EMV uh, in terms of uh, the, uh, the, the, the Monovision? Minus so 0.5, in, 0.75 or? Yeah, so so to, to answer the ocular dominance question, I don't, I don't get too worried about that. Um, if patients already know or have a, you can tell me they have a strong preference, you know, people that have been involved in hobbies or occupations where they, they know which is their stronger eye, then, then obviously that's, that's easy. For patients who've got cataract, then um, it's sometimes less, less easy to determine that if, if they don't already have some idea. Um, and, if, and if there's any kind of concern, then I'll, I'll normally just set the right eye um, as, as the distance eye. Um, if, if, they're, if they're right-handed, then that can give you a clue as there's a correlation between handedness and monocular dominance. But I don't get too worried about it because there's, there's some good studies out there that, that crossed monovision can work just as effectively as, as standard monovision. So, um, so even if you, if you set the, the non-dominant eye for distance, um, then, then it can work just as well. Um, and you know, that, that's been published several years ago. And certainly in my, in my practice in Perth, um, we didn't do any kind of dominance testing at all. What we would do is we would um, operate on the, on the worst eye first. So it was a purely contract practice. Uh, we'd operate on the, on the eye with the worst visual acuity, aim for emetropia. And then based on the outcome of that one, we would then set the fellow eye for around about a minus 1.25 offset. Um, and, and, and that's what, you know, to answer the second part of your question, that's what I have been doing um, up until quite recently. So with, with standard monofocals, I've been aiming for around about 1.25 because I think to, to, try and, to try and achieve as much useful intermediate to near vision as possible, you, you do need to push into that range. Um, but you do sometimes run into problems with, with anisometropia and neural adaptation, and, and there is a bit of chair time involved after that um, with some patients. Um, and also the, the middle uh, distance vision is exactly, reduced. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. so, so you do have to have that conversation. Um, whereas with the EMV, I started off using a, a 1.25 offset, um, and I've started... To, to consider using a smaller offset because with, with the range that you're getting, the distance eye is getting a bit more intermediate, the near eye is getting a bit more near, um, the, the blend between the two seems to be a bit more natural. Um, and, and I think we can, we can probably get away with a, with a, a smaller offset of around 0.75 to, to one diopters between the eyes, which is for most patients almost imperceptible. I don't think you need to spend too much chair time talking about that, it's maybe a little bit, but not as much as if you're setting them for a 1.25 to 1.5 difference. 
Um, so, so yeah, in increasingly I'm I'm reducing the offset that I'm that I'm using. Alan, what do you what do you use routinely? I, I, I use between 0.25 and 1.25, but I, I normally split patients into two groups. Those who um, those who basically really don't mind wearing glasses, they're really not looking for a kind of independent glasses option, in which case I'll just aim for the lowest, it's the, the lens power that results in the lowest positive expected refractive error in the dominant eye. So you know, plus 0.1, plus 0.2, something like that. And the reason for that is that because of this positive spherical aberration, they they end up refracting to a bit more myopia than you might expect. Um, and in the non-dominant, I'm 0.25 to 0.5. Um, originally, I was doing zero, but it's now, it's like Andy says, it's so imperceptible that you may as well give them something. And then they have intermediate vision, which they always uh, appreciate, even if they don't come and ask for it in terms of independence. Um but if they want to be totally independent of glasses, then I then I agree with Andy. I think I think between 0.75 and and 1.25 is about the sweet spot. So kind of one would be the the, the rough target if they want total independence of glasses. Um, and we do test them for ocular dominance, but that's difficult in the presence of asymmetric or unilateral cataract. Yeah. Um, you then sometimes have to go on history. Uh, but again, as Andy said, you know, ocular dominance is a bit of a movable feast. Um, and you've also got some patients who prefer to read from their dominant eye, and vice versa. So, you know, I'm quite lucky. I'm supported by a practice of very able and skilled optometrists that will do a huge amount of work up for me. But sometimes it gives you more decisions to make um, rather than less. And I think with this lens, you can be a bit more relaxed about it. It's not uh, you're not going to have a patient come back and be unhappy because of a dominance issue. But I, I would tell them that if you're going to go for the minus one or minus one point two five, that that it may take them six to 12 weeks to kind of feel totally comfortable with it. I think that you don't have much to lose by telling them that it may take them some time to adjust. Mm -hmm. I advise patients not to compare eyes because that does slow down neuroadaptation. Um, and I tell anyone where I'm going for a decent monovision setup, which is 1.25 or more, that there's about a two or 3% chance that they might want glasses for driving at night. Um, they just keep in the glove box of the car. They don't see that as a, as a, as a kind of failure or loss. But if you tell them before, then if they need it afterwards, then they don't, they don't complain about it. I mean, I've had patients who come back and they say, oh, this eye, one eye is blurred, which is their minus 0.75 eye, and they've forgotten that that's what the, the arrangement was. And that can sort of cause some uh, confusion. Um, I, had, I, had, I had exactly kind of, that kind of patient yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I had exactly that. And then, and then I showed her on the near chart that she could see N4.5. And then it's... So, ah. <laughs> And if we move on to when you the approach that you adopt when you're talking to the patients, uh, and um, I don't know if you have conversations about um, the pricing and if they're being done in, in private practice, and, and how do you manage them in, the patients in that regard, uh, and sort of describing the lens to them as opposed to the other EDOF and the trifocal lenses. So I think there's a few things to say. The first is. You, you can't practically present patients with a list of every single option that exists to them. It just results in confusion. They walk out of the consultation not knowing what you've said, um, and they really have no idea. And then they, then they have anxiety. So they've not only got a cataract, now they're like, oh, now I've got to choose which lens I want. So I tend to speak to them about what they would like and what they expect. So I spend time finding out what it is they want to achieve, but I then tell them what I think would be best for them in order to achieve that. Um, and in patients who 
don't want to be independent of glass or totally independent of glasses, I, I recommend the EMV lens because I tell them that it improves their quality of vision. And now you might say, well, that doesn't make sense. The quality of vision, you know, maybe the contrast sensitivity isn't as good with this. And I think that we as surgeons and clinicians need to differentiate the kind of language and optical information that we are very familiar with compared to how a patient thinks of things because you can be easily tripped up. So we might think that quality vision is the, the vision that's the best that can be with glasses. Whereas for a patient, what they describe as quality of vision is, is basically being satisfied with their vision. And what is very difficult for patients to conceive and actually some referring optometrists, the kind of optometrists who tell you you should leave a patient minus three, is that if you use a standard monofocal lens and the patient is pseudophagic, they only have a focus at that one particular point which in my opinion is not good quality of vision. Natural quality of vision is where there is a natural range of vision and that's what this lens provides. So yes, you could say, look, if you're defining quality of vision as contrast sensitivity or you know, best spectacle corrected visual acuity that you might see subtle differences, as you say, you, know, you can't have a free lunch, you might see subtle differences, but actually in terms of functional vision, which is the patient feeling that the vision is natural, this lens does provide better quality of vision. So I say, look, this is what I recommend for you because it gives you a better quality of vision and it costs a bit more. And they don't ask any more questions. They're like, you're the surgeon. You're telling me this is going to give me better quality of vision. I tell, if they say, what do you mean by better quality of vision? I'll say, well, it means that you can not only see at distance, but you'll also be able to have a more natural range of vision where you can see things, you know, at intermediate distance, but they normally don't really get into it. You know, I don't think you have, we feel that we have to impart all our knowledge to the patient. It's just not, They'll never understand. I know that's, I hope that doesn't come across as condescending, but they, they just won't understand the optical intricacies of everything we know. So it has to be given to them in a kind of palatable way. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of data now showing the benefit of this lens without significant detriment. And if anyone, if that isn't the case, I'm happy to kind of review it or have a look at it. But I, I, I do think that they're better off for it. They have to be prepared to pay a bit more if they're insured. Um, if they're self-paying, if they're paying a little bit more as well, but it's it's a it's it's less than they spend on glasses. Um, so it's just generally the price point I don't find to be an issue from patients, not in my practice. How, how long do you spend talking to them about the lenses? Um, so the patients in my diary, they get they get time, they get put in for 30 minutes, a new patient. Um, and because they've had the entire diagnostic workup and history taken and optometric refraction. Um, and often we have an OCT, we have a, you know, um, an, op, um, an optos also looking at the retina. So the, it, my examination is really an examination of their anterior segment, which just takes a few minutes. So the majority of the consultation is me asking them, um, you know, first of all, confirm the diagnosis, but also asking them what they expect from their vision, what they want in terms of glasses. Um, I ask them about some of their activities to find out about night vision. Um, I even ask them about weird stuff that you wouldn't expect. Because I've been caught out by a patient who didn't drive at night, but a hobby was stargazing. Um, so I will go into a lot of detail with that. And then, and then the majority of the consultation is me explaining um, the risks, the benefits, and what they can expect with respect to their vision. But with the EMV, I can do that much more quickly than I can with the trifocal. So it saves me. It probably saves me at least 10 minutes of chair time for an individual patient. Yeah. It's much more, using it, but it's nice. It's a stress-free lens for the surgeon to use. Yeah. When you're dealing with people with trifocals, you're always angst, particularly post-operatively, the, the problems that they're going to run into. Uh, Andy, how long do you spend with your, your guys? Um, so I don't 
spend that long talking about the about the lens. Um, I'll I'll spend you know around 15, 20 minutes talking about the you know the options in terms of refractive targeting um, and whether that's emetropia or monovision or something else. Um, I will spend a bit more time if if we're going down the trifocal route because I think I think they do warrant more um, chat. But I think you know, to, to just follow on from from Alan's point, you know, I think I, I don't charge any extra for monofocal plus lenses, whether that's ENV. I don't charge any extra for toric because I think those kind of those kind of concepts are quite nuanced for, for a patient to understand. You know, you can easily get bogged down in in technical stuff and and trying to explain to a patient, you know. That they would benefit from a toric when their mate that's got half a doctor less astigmatism, or because they're with the rule and their friends against the rule, you know, it's 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 a it can be a difficult sell to try and justify why one patient might need a toric, one patient might need a monofocal plus. So I just I just absorb all that in in my kind of set fee for self pay patients. And I think really it's our our job as as refractive cataract surgeons to, to choose the lens that best suits the patient. And just because they happen to have a bit of astigmatism or a bit more spherical aberration than normal or you know, whatever, I don't think they should necessarily, you know, need to pay extra for that. Um, it'd be like going into a, a shop to buy jeans and because you're a 34 inch waist, you pay more than if you're a 30 inch waist. You know, it's, it's, that, it's finding the right fit. I think so. Um, so that's my approach for, for self-pay patients. For, for insured patients, you know, it's, it's very much like like Alan said. You know, I'll, I'll set out the fact that you know, cataract surgery. It's not just about um, in, in, you know, removing the cataract. There's there's an opportunity to improve your overall quality of vision and your dependence on glasses. And and, and a lot of my patients, you know, the, the more elderly patients, retired to the south coast. You know, they're often not aware of that. Um, you know, they, they just think they've got a cataract and there's one option. So it, it's a case of educating them that there, there are other options and then, and then finding out what's going to be the best one for them. Uh, we've had one very good question relating to this. Do you, either of you use sort of um, what, what um, someone's described as visual aids? So videos, um, websites or whatever to help describe the different types of lenses and, uh, and what's available and as part of the, I suppose, informed consent process. I do very briefly, so um, so that the, the the graph I showed at the beginning with all the um, the the bars with the range of vision with each lens, I think that's quite a useful diagram just to illustrate to patients what they could expect with a, an emptropic aim versus a monovision aim, etc., um, and and highlighting that this equals driving and TV, this equals dashboard and dinner plate, etc. I think that's that's quite a useful thing just to illustrate that point um, and, and there are some good uh, simulations of, of glare and starburst and things which which I think are and halos which are useful for the for the trifocal candidates. Sure. Alan do you have anything? Yeah I mean I'd, I would love to I just I just haven't found a simulation or video that I that I believe kind of accurately reflects exactly what that patient might perceive and I think one of the things I'm concerned about is that when you see images of like night vision disturbances with trifocal lenses they either the simulations that I've seen seem probably to be 
a bit too kind. You know, they're either put together by industry where they kind of make everything seem almost perfect or they seem a little bit too unkind where they're kind of like they show everything to be kind of totally disorientating. And what we really need is a way to map the optical elements of an individual's, that individual's eye that you're talking to right there um, in the absence of cataract and then show them the simulation for themselves. And I th there are a lot of these in the pipeline. I know Arthur Cummings is involved in some of this stuff, um, but none of them are, you know, as far as I'm aware, ready and available on the market in order to show and demonstrate patients. So it's weird that with all the technology we have to look at everything with the eye, we still don't have a kind of total optical scanner that can show you how an individual's eye handles light in its totality. Um, they're just approximations. So I'd be concerned that by showing them an image, they might assume that's what they'll see and actually won't be. You know, and then they'll, then they'll just fixate on that. They'll be like, that looks all right. I'm going to get that. I'd rather they listen to what I'm saying and say, look, you know, it might take you six to 12 weeks to adapt and adjust to this. If you have problems afterwards, like your eyes are dry or you get some capsular opacification, we're going to need to treat that. If you end up with a refractive error and there's a one or 2% chance of that, then you're going to need to have laser refractive surgery. So I more need them to kind of understand and accept that. By the way, this all applies to trifocal lenses more than the Ray-1 EMV, but I need them to understand and accept that more than they look at an image and go, oh yeah, that looks all right, I'll have that. So I think it can be a bit of a slippery slope. Um, but yeah, I mean, there certainly is a place for it. And maybe, maybe the place would be materials that we send in advance of the consultation. So I think that one of the things that, you know, we, and I mean, when I say we, I mean the entire industry, you know, we probably could do better at kind of educating the public, you know, like they come, like, as Andy says, they come with like literally zero knowledge often, um, you know, there should, there probably should be awareness out there that you have. Um, and I agree with you, Paul, that premium lenses is a bit of a, you, you know, annoying term in some ways, but that there are non-standard lenses, let's say, or lenses that do extra stuff um out there and they have advantages for certain patients um and the more the more educated they are by community optometrists by each other because they've learned things in their consultation and from what they've had themselves um and us the better and it's it's a, i think it's a it's a reality of practice everywhere in the um developed world that premium lens usage happens less frequency less frequently than it should so less patients get premium lenses than we know would benefit from them. That is just a statement of fact. Mm. Um, so anything that can be done to, to improve that will be great for patients. I mean, is that in part risk of a surgeons, um, financial issues? Um... I think, I, I don't see it as a risk. I see it as a burden, let's say. Okay. So the burden as we've often identified, there's a time burden. There's to yeah. some extent a technology burden. Um, there is, I suppose, an expense burden. And then there's also just the fear of change. You know, change is, change is uncomfortable. Change in any element of life is uncomfortable. And when it's, when it's like your surgical practice and your patient that is the, the instrument through which change needs to apply, it just takes a lot of courage. So it's just so much easier to do what you've always been doing. And because people have always been doing standard lenses and the person that taught you did standard lenses, you just kind of do that because you feel comfortable with it. And this seems like a whole kind of scary arena. Um, but, you know, for those of us that have busy private practices, they're busy because patients tell their friends that they, they have great vision and that's why they should go there. You know, if they didn't have good vision, they, wouldn't, they would not recommend. That's kind of how it works. I'd like to thank Andy and Alon for participating in this webinar. 
and to thank you all for listening to this episode. You can watch the full recording of Rainer's Premium IOL webinar now on the peer-to-peer hub at rainer.com slash peer-to-peer. Thank you very much. Be sure to listen to the next episode where Dr. Eric Donenfeld and Dr. Jerry Hu talk about Ray1 EMV billing packages in the United States. For more information about this episode's topic and to read the show notes, visit the peer-to-peer hub at rainer.com forward slash peer-to-peer. This podcast is provided for general information purposes only. The presenter's views are their own. Rainer does not endorse off-label use. Users must refer to the product labelling and instructions for use for Rainer products in all cases. Not all Rainer products are available in all countries. The full disclaimer can be found in the show notes.